prices helped ExxonMobil boost its profits to nearly $11 billion in the latest quarter. Shell is the latest oil company to report a big rise in profits thanks to higher oil prices. The ability of speculators to profit is surely dwarfed by the ability of oil-producing nations to profit from a higher price of oil. Maybe the easiest way for these guys to make the money, manipulate oil back above 50 even $60. Um, and I think that's just a general change in the, the sort of societal conversation that's taking place that is taking place in part because of alternative media and podcasts and people's access to this information has changed. Okay, guys, welcome back to the Grimerica Show. Uh, we're going to be chatting with James Corbett a little bit later, the Corbett Report and uh, others. But uh, first, as always... I'm in Vancouver Dunlop. Hey, I like how I could just like shut you off if I want. I could just close you. Done. Might as well just do it now. <laughs> Put me out of my misery. Maybe I could just hang something over the screen. Maybe you could just hire some paid trolls to discredit me. I don't need paid trolls to discredit you. <laughs> Can you hear me okay, though? Seriously, I don't know. Now, all of a sudden, the connection seems bad. No, it sounds fine. Okay. So, how you doing? Oh, not bad. You? Oh, not bad? Long day. Yeah? You're playing hooky? I don't understand that. In hooky what? I said, well, you're playing hooky. Oh, yeah. Do you not get it? Yeah, we have... No. You don't get playing hooky, skipping work? That's no, I'm not on a, that's vacation. Not a, that's not a thing in the 80s? I'm on did they vacation. they call it something else? What did they call it in the 80s? Oh, vacation now. Oh, vacation. Hookies when you skip out. Not when you plan it. You can't plan a hookie. Yeah, it's the same thing. <clears throat> or unless, is that what you you guys do in your era? Yeah. Plan yeah. a hookie? No, yeah, you're fucked. Yeah, of course you do. Why wouldn't so, you? Yeah, we have a great chat with James coming up on this about... All kinds of stuff. 9-11 and the control grid and some of his documentaries and stuff like that and his uh, his alternative news source. It's really interesting. True, Great yeah. Show. Yeah, I, I love The Court Report. That's one of my favorite podcasts right now for sure. I like when you find a new podcast and there's already hundreds of episodes. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. So, how's so the trip? you sent me. Oh, it's good, man. Yep. You see the fam? Yep. See Sweet. the family. Amazing drive from Cash Creek to Pemberton. You ever have a chance to do that? It's I've never heard of either of those places. In, what? Really? Yeah. Just for local people that are in BC or Alberta or whatever, it's an amazing drive through the mountains. It's really cool. Sweet. Yeah. I might actually be heading out to Victoria this summer. In July. Well, I'll be on the island uh, in two days, I guess, or three days uh, to check out um, the game. Cloud, Cloudhead, Cloudhead Games, uh, the gallery, uh, Call of the Starseed launch party. I'm looking forward to that. Uh, yeah, actually, I'm going to go see Duncan Trussell tomorrow night. Do you stand up? 
Yeah. Sweet. I think I think so. I'm not really sure what it is. I'm just going with my sister. Did you tweet them? No. Maybe. Oh, you didn't bring the digital recorder, obviously, because it's no. right here. No. Well, that's no. The, uh, I'm gonna play hooky. Yeah. In the podcast. <laughs> that's a shame. Pretty slow on that. Yeah, well, I was in the email program instead of the soundboard. Oh. So that I could play the new MUFON report jingle when need be. But nice. then you told a terrible joke, so I figured I'd, it was worth switching back. Yeah. So, uh, of course so you sent me an article today that is actually quite appropriate to today's episode that we're recording for. Oh, I never even thought of that. You didn't? No, we talked about to we talked to James actually on this episode about paid trolls and uh, I was talking to him about how you know how we know what is being influenced out there, right? From all these paid trolls. And you sent me an article today, which you don't do very often. And we don't really talk about news and current events that much, but we should probably talk about it. Should we go over it quickly? Sure, yeah. I didn't read it. I just read the headline. You didn't read it. Oh, you're such a lazy ass. I so read the Hillary- headline and it made me think of you. <laughs> So Hillary Clinton camp now paying online trolls to attack anyone who disparages her online. And this isn't a conspiracy theory, but uh, David Brock, the head of his, of her super PAC, um, basically is admitting, so it's not a conspiracy. He's uh, paying like a million, I think they're spending a million dollars, an online mob of paid trolls designed to attack any and every person who says one crossword about Hillary Clinton on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Reddit, or elsewhere. This isn't a conspiracy theory. They openly spin their strategy on the Correct the Record website and state that they are putting over $1 million behind their efforts. And as, as we all know, super PACs are allowed to raise and spend unlimited money on these types of efforts. What's ugly is that we have no idea who these paid operatives are online. According to Correct the Record, many will be former reporters, PR executives, bloggers, and others. We have no idea if they truly say what they mean or mean what they say. Are they even using their actual identities? The Sanders campaign openly stated that they have never paid for any online comments. So this is obviously, you know, it's... um, How come no one hires us to do online comments? I could troll some shit up. I bet you I'd be good at it. We should troll someone. We should make it a policy right now that never take money to fucking troll. Fuck that. If someone fucking offers me money to troll, I am jumping on it. Not through the podcast. Not through the podcast. I just I'll just comment. I'll just say fuck you. Personality that trolls people. Yeah, his name will be fucking Graham Dunlop six four seven or Graham Dunlop four twenty. Graham Dunlop. (laughs) Dunlop, no Dunlop. (laughs) Put four twenty in there either. Why not? It's not you. So he talks. He also how about Graham? Don't lap. What? Done. Don't. What's the opposite of done? Not done? Graham not done, Lop? How about Graham's just done with this conversation? (laughs) Fair enough. So anyways, he also says, uh, 
all of this comes after the revelation from Politico that NBC Universal, News Corp, Turner Broadcasting, and Thomson Reuters are among more than a dozen media organizations that have made charitable contributions to the Clinton Foundation in recent years. The foundation's record shows that foundation. the donations range from low thousands to the millions. In fact, people from the TV industry have given Hillary Clinton's campaign over nine million so far. Why? So that's yeah, that's pretty creepy, eh? It's fucked up to me. It just never oh. ceases to amaze me. The U.S. political system and fucking like <laughs> nobody, just nobody cares. This. Nobody cares. Yeah. You're allowed to do this. So all of this, of course, muddies the waters to the point of us not being quite clear who's a crony, who's a donor, or who's a staffer for the Clinton campaign. So much money is exchanging hands that it's impossible to tell who's being bought and sold. All of this speaks to the horrendous role super PACs and big money play in the political system. It's a real mess. Yeah, unbelievable, eh? Yeah. People care. I just don't think they really know much about it. They don't. They don't understand how corrupt it really is. Really, but, I mean, you shouldn't even be allowed to to pay mainstream television that are supposed to be somewhat partial to uh, to have an opinion like that. It's crazy. There's no partial. No partial. So, anyways, that's <laughs> a very interesting timing of that to come out when we talk about it on the with James. I think uh, Trump just steamrolled again. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know about Bernie, though. Bernie was fucking, he just doesn't seem to have it because of these super delegates or whatever they are. Doesn't seem to have what? Oh, yeah. Trump won another fucking 200 and some or 100 and some for sure. So he's only he's only 300 and some away. Bernie looks like Bernie got fucking. How do you know though? Bernie. If you're watching the media, like, do you have to you have to go to somewhere else to to hear the truth about Bernie? Right? Isn't he getting like thirty thousand people to some of his rallies? And you never hear about it. Yeah, maybe I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. It just seems uh, messed up, crazy that Hillary Clinton. That they just keep voting in the same two families. Mm -hmm. And well, not, not thinking voting, that I mean, something's up. That's the problem. Oh, stop. Public don't really get a say. No, not really. Anyways, I got to also uh, challenge you on something else. You haven't officially raised the synchro score of... of uh, I'm not raising it. Our listener, the artist formerly known as C, S-E-A. I just said that to change the subject at the time. I'm not raising it. All so right, fine. I'll raise it. Pick? What did I say I would raise it to? I did see the I picture know. of the I layer. knew you were going to ask me that. I don't know. Okay, well, it's raised. Okay. <laughs> there you go, C. <laughs> I do remember seeing the picture of the lighter. <sighs> I'll give him an extra one point, I think I said. Right? Right. All right. Yeah, sure. Yeah, raise it up a point. So what are you doing? Are you doing MUFON shit again this week? I Yeah, I have a MUFON uh, story, yep. Okay. MUFON uh, report. I'll play the new jingle. Part of the new segment. 
kept saying, you know, what is that? What is that? And it Sounds wasn't like until that. after the events what happened, and it Please disappeared to the south in the dark, that we went inside. You. We stayed outside for a couple seconds, and we went inside. And she sat on the couch, and I went to the bar, and I sit on the stool, and I took my glasses off, and we stared at each other for 5, 10, 15 minutes. Who knows? And I got up, and I wanted to go back outside, and as I grabbed the door, I looked my wife right in the eye, and I said, we just saw our first UFO. And she looked at me back, and she goes, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. Nice. Come back. I'm glad you remember, you remember my story. I could not forget your story. <laughs> So that's a taking that one to the grave. That's a new jingle from PewDiePie. PewDiePie of no agenda fame. Yeah. It always, yeah. It's always seems like a compliment when people from no agenda come over. Yeah, exactly. And you know what? Uh, We might have some, some uh, competition for nap on the uh, weekly artwork as well. If PewDiePie decides to, decides to uh, throw some art in there. Well, Nap will Actually, be extra busy too because I think Nap's helping out Olav now too. We should give a shout out to Olav. I don't. I guess you can find the links. That's your gig. But uh, he's got his new Paranoia podcast. Oh really? Yeah. Okay, I'll, I'll I'll put a link in there to that too. Yeah, Olav's been. I'm a big not, sp- I haven't checked it out. I'm not 100 percent sure it started or not, but I know it's starting soon. Okay. What's it called again? Paranoia or something? Paranoia podcast. Nice. Yeah, yeah, it should be good. Olaf's great. Yeah, he's uh, he's wearing his Grand Grand America shirt with pride. That's right. <laughs> and he bought it. To, he's uh, he's in on the draw too. So Olaf might be the win and join us to interview someone. Nice. I wonder who he'd pick. Probably people out of our range. Um, so yeah, that's cool. And then I think he's gonna. Ha- we're gonna have a little a little page in it. We're gonna have a page in the magazine too. So we'll have to buy a couple issues of that. Yeah, for sure. Is it online or is it also printed? No, I think it's printed. Yeah, it's printed. Yeah, we'll get some for the studio for sure. Yeah, I just send a few out. Right on. Yeah. So I got another uh, little, uh, I don't think it's a synchro, it's more of a precog thing. You know what? Actually, I'm not sure if I talked about it already. <laughs> You know, uh, you'll have to tell me if, uh, if you pre-cogged if I did. Well, here, yeah, this is a little, I'll, I'll little more difficult. I'll use an excuse to play another this synchro jingle. Let me see if this motherfucker... The researcher believes that this neurosynchronicity occurs when the brains of musicians playing together create a neurological meta-network. According to her, the phenomenon can be described as a kind of communal brain. Brain, 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 brain. Six. Six. I'm precognitively reading oh, yeah? it. Yeah. Okay, so, uh, hey, Graham, I hope this communication finds you well. I have a tale to tell. I've been using the ESP trainer app from the Stanford Research Institute. I'm officially doing well enough that I'm starting to apply it in real life. This weekend was the Grand National, the biggest horse racing event in the U.K., I'm not a gambling man, but everyone in the UK puts a bit of money on this race, mainly because it's not predictable. It's a jump race, and a lot of horses fall during it. My wife is a gambler and dragged me into placing a bet, so I thought I'd use the same principle I learned with the ESP app and put my mind elsewhere before looking at the list of runners. 
I did my best not to focus on the horses and barely glanced at the list. Only one horse came into focus at a quick glance, so I put five quid on it to win. I felt no way about it, no real expectations. So when my horse, who was in the middle of the pack until the very last, came to surge into the lead and won by seven lengths, I was sure it was a confirmation there was something a bit unusual going on. The odds on my horse were 50 to 1 at the time. There's about 25 runners in the race. I never gamble. I know the universe was showing me something, but you can bet it won't work again. That was just to let me know I was on the right track, not as a route into a terrible gambling habit. I'll let you know if I can apply it more to more worthwhile pursuits. Kind regards. That was from Mike, actually. We've used some of his music before, too. I'll, I'm going to link to some of his stuff in the show notes here as well. Yeah, and send your music. If you have some. Yeah. And I'll play it. I like to play music. And, it, you know, it makes my job easier, too, because I don't have to fucking go and find it. <laughs> so, yeah, I told him about that uh, pod. Remember we did that one, of the guy from the Monroe Institute, about... Uh, he does those Vegas uh, con- Joel Gallenberger. Well. Yeah, Joel Gallenberger. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, Joseph Gallenberger. So if anybody's interested in applying that as well, they can go back and listen to that episode. It was pretty fun. What is, I like those Monroe guys. Randomly come up. What do you mean? Did you just say that out of nowhere? How did you get there? To Joseph Gallenberger. The gambling at the horse race. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. Now I get it. I missed that. Well, fucking text or uh, email us next time before the race and we'll pick a horse. We, yeah, for sure. I want to get in on some British horse racing. Can I watch the race? Probably. I want to watch the race that he's put money down on for us. Well, we could, we could email, we could. I don't know. We could. I don't know how we could do it. We could figure it out. I don't think he's really going to do it a lot again. His wife's a gambler, so. Oh. Well, we could go. Are the you horse listening tra- to any of that? We could go to yeah. the horse track here. There's a track here. Yeah, they made one up in Balzac. I think it just opened, or it's just opening this spring, this summer. Century Downs. Yeah, we should do that. We used to go in Vancouver when we were kids. It was fun. Fuck yeah. So that's the best place to grow up at the track. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, big thanks to PewDiePie for the jingles. Uh, That's just another way to support the show. Jingles, art, um, yeah, money. Check out growamerica.ca slash support. Uh, There's details there on how you can help us out monetarily and uh, help us keep the lights on. Of course, there's... uh, our jingles that we got from PewDiePie. Right now we're running the upgrade contest, which is grimerica.ca slash upgrade. All the details are there. Uh, I think there's only about 45 tickets or about a month and a bit left. By the time this comes out. How many tickets? You're not. 45 or something. Okay. Okay. So yeah, please help us out because uh, we need, uh, obviously we need this money for a new computer. New so, yeah, there's computer. only a month We're left. almost there, right? How far are we now? Like 75% probably? Yeah. So whatever we don't we raise, gotta... if it comes to June 1st and we don't raise enough money, we'll do the draw anyways and then we'll just pay out of pocket or whatever for the rest of it. So And the iPad. But I mean, I'm sure. 
Oh, yeah. You guys got a month, so buy your tickets. If you haven't bought tickets yet, buy them now. And if you bought tickets a while ago, buy some more. There's no limit. That's about it. Oh, tell your friends about the show. Of course, that's the best way to help us out. If you can't afford to uh, any options there, just tell people. That's our only marketing is you motherfuckers. And Graham running all over the place in his shirt. And his short shorts. (coughs) Are the short shorts back? Is it nice in Vancouver? Uh, I got them packed, yeah. I've been waiting. Uh, it's been raining a little bit here. Well, not too bad. It's, it's a little cloudy. It's been raining here, too, for like three days. Today it didn't rain. It was just cloudy. The sun came out for a bit. It was the first time I've seen it. Three or four days. When did you leave? Was it nice when you left? I think it started getting shitty the next day. Oh, yeah. I left on Thursday night. Yeah. Anyway, what else you got? Uh, the MUFON report. Didn't I? Did I say that yet? Yeah, I played the jingle and everything. The MUFON report. Did you? Did you play it after the jingle, or did you go to something else? Oh my god, I'm just losing it right now. This is hard being away from you, out of the studio. Did you play the MUFON report? I played the jingle. Did you? What did we do? And then we talked about. Uh... <laughs> 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 what happened there? I'm losing it. Did we even say it? I didn't even say it. I don't know. Oh, we just got it. <laughs> I think you went right from that into, I don't know. Totally got off track because I started, said, oh, I'm glad start you remember. And I'll tell you. What my, what my sighting was. And then we just started going off from there. <laughs> start it and I'll tell you if you said it already. Okay. This is Move On Report <laughs> 75997. Didn't from do Mount, it. You definitely did not do it. <laughs> from Mounds View, Minnesota. Large group of orbs. <clears throat> you get that? Large group of orbs on Mounds View. I don't get the, the reference. Oh, it's okay. Traveling northwest by car from St. Paul, we saw what originally we thought was a huge cluster of balloons. After watching for a couple of minutes, we realized they weren't balloons or birds or anything else we've seen before. They were reflecting light, and they would all disappear, only to show up again a few seconds later. We pulled over so I could get to try. We pulled over so I could get a couple pictures, but only managed to get one. These orbs would form various shapes, triangles at one point, then very quickly change to a different formation. We saw one plane fly directly below them. We followed them home and walked down the street to watch them until they were too far away to see anymore. A black hawk in the area about an hour later. A black hawk? Yeah. As in the helicopter. That brings me back to (laughs) a good old Len Caston episode. Anyway. Um, There you have it. That's the Moonfun Report. I feel like uh, I like the quotes better. But the jingle's good. The jingle's good. Well, we'll get uh, we'll get back to quotes, and you and I'll, I'll I'll find some good ones. Yeah, that aren't about UFOs. No, no, <laughs> didn't think so. What else you got? No synchros. Well, uh, no, uh, well, kind of, but I want to save them for next time. And I got some really good emails from some listeners. They're a little bit longer, and I'd rather be in studio when I read them. 
we got some uh, some stuff from Ponce, who I gotta I gotta start paying attention to some stuff that you're going on about. What Ponce am I going is, on about? Ponce is on to something. Ponce is. Yeah. We're Facebook friends. Probably, yeah, I wouldn't doubt it. So I see some pictures. Looks like he's got a cool job. Ponce just donated uh, really good. Uh, he he subscribed to a couple different subscriptions. He finally unfucked his PayPal account. So yeah, there you have it, people. Unfuck your PayPal account. <laughs> um, and the other one is I got a I got a long email from uh, from Mark. His name is Mark about flash bulbs and CSETI that I want to get into next time. But it's pretty long. I got to talk to you about how how we want to to go about it. It's definitely something I want to get into. But that'll be next time. How long could it be? Uh, I don't know. Like 50 minutes, probably. Oh. Okay. Yeah, we'll keep it short. It's not as fun when you're not here. But I gotta, I gotta, I gotta talk about the NA No Agenda oh, Meetup. Yes, yes. It's at the end of May in Red Deer, Alberta. I'm linking to it in the show notes. Um, and actually, there's a place now picked out, and it's the 111 Club or something like that, which is very interesting. 111 Grill. So that uh, makes sense. And there's, uh, there's at least six or seven of us going, and you can sign up, maybe even sign up and say you're not going, just so you know there's an, uh, so we know you're a local Alberta-ish uh, NA supporter, no agenda supporter. That's that. And then the other thing I want to just give a shout out to is uh, if anybody has paranormal videos, there's a casting Still doing call. That, eh? Well, yeah, because if people have their videos, I want them to, you know, what? they can get paid paid for their video and have their video on TV. Uh, if they, if this leaves a bad taste in my mouth. Does it really? Yeah, the first my, time it was okay, and the second time it was all right. Okay, okay, okay. This is the last <laughs> time. This is the last time. Temple Street Production and... Uh, I'm I'm supposed to forward this to some paranormal experts as well, but I'm not sure if I should do that. Not, not a lot of people want to go on TV. They're genuine in this because TV just fucks with your story, doesn't it? I don't know. I've never been on TV. I've been watching some cable, though. Have you? Yeah. How's that going for you? Oh, the commercials are crazy. I can't even believe it. I can't oh, believe yeah. it. <laughs> it's true, right? Eh? If you haven't watched them for a few years, oh, you can never go back. Have you seen any of the big? Have you seen any of the big farmer commercials, like where they're talking about the side effects for yeah. prescription drugs? Yeah, oh, those are all over the place. And new cars. Oh, it's unbelievable. Tampons. Movies. Really go after the tampons. Really? Yeah, I think well, it's because that's because you're watching like the, for, I'm watching chick shows. <laughs> <laughs> Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> How's this for slow? <laughs> I think that right about wraps so, it yeah. in. Yeah. All right, guys, enjoy the chat with uh, James Corbett. Check out his show. And uh, yeah, see you in the outro.
right, tonight, Darren and I are pretty excited. We've got James Corbin on the show of the Corbett Report, which is like open source intelligence news. He's got a listener-supported alternative news source. He's been doing it for almost a decade now. Lives in Japan, does this, provides podcasts, interviews, articles, lots of evidence-based, like, deep uh, intelligence work. It's really fascinating. Learn a ton of stuff. Darren and I have been going down the rabbit hole for the last few weeks here. So I guess uh, we're, I'm going to let James describe the rest of it to us. <clears throat> and uh, it's so good. Shout out to Alex, I think. That's how oh, I got uh, yeah. into James was because yeah. of uh, Alex Alex Sikaris from Skeptical. Yeah, we I had heard about uh, James a little bit before that, but hadn't really got too uh, too deep into it. So anyways, without uh, further ado, welcome to the show, James. Well, thank you for having me on. You said it's been almost a decade uh, that my website's been up, and I, my immediate reaction is, no, that's not. And, and then I have to think about it. But yeah, it's been nine years now. That's incredible to me. Yeah, exactly. Have you been doing the podcast that long as well? That's right. The uh, The website was initially just going to be for basically for my podcast, but I quickly discovered I needed to do videos and articles and other things, so it kind of branched out from there. But yeah, it's it's always been kind of centered around the podcast. So you were right up there with the forefathers of podcasting. Like, <laughs> there must not have been a lot of shows around when you were getting started. Well, not as many. No, I, I did it before it was cool. I'm the podcast hipster. Yeah. Those are always, you know, those are always the better shows. Though. Like, you you know, Agenda's been around forever. These shows have been around seven, eight, nine years. I mean... Yeah, power to them. You guys really kind of paved the way for us assholes. <laughs> <laughs> I did what I could. So I, know, I don't take responsibility or or blame for for anything that follows. <laughs> nice. I I know it's cliche, and I, I really don't even like to go down the the whole background path, but I think it's apo- appropriate uh, today, especially just to give people an idea of like of what your what your site is like describe it in your own words and what your and how you sort of got uh, into this open source intelligence and maybe we'll start with that before we get into some of the deeper topics. All right, well, I'm a Calgarian born and raised and I went to the University of Calgary, did my English major and then uh, was looking for a way to kill a year and do something else and so I decided to go over to Dublin, Ireland and study Anglo-Irish literature there for a year. After that, I had absolutely no idea what I was going to do, so I broke my cardinal rule. Back when I was getting my English major, everyone said, what are you going to do with your degree? And although I always said, I'm going to frame it, um, (laughs) the real answer, of course, everyone said, oh, well, you're either going to be a journalist or a teacher. And I said, no, I'll never be a journalist or a teacher. I want to be a novelist or something. Of course, I ended up becoming a teacher and then a journalist. So there you go. Um, I ended up going to Japan for just to teach English. And again, it was just going to be a way to kill a year and you know decide what I want to do with my life. But one year has a funny way of turning into two, three, four, now 12. <laughs> I've been in Japan for 12 years now and I have a family here. So um, I'm pretty settled. Uh, and it was in 2006 that a very, very mundane, everyday activity uh, happened. I moved into a new apartment here. But this apartment came with an internet connection. And it was the first time I had an internet connection in my home for years. And in the time that I didn't have that internet connection, all sorts of new things were coming online, like Google Video and YouTube and sites like that that hadn't existed before. And when I saw, suddenly saw them and saw what was happening... It was really exciting for me. I have always been politically interested and and interested in these subjects, but of course, you're growing up in the pre-internet age. I mean, we were always just subject to the whims of whatever you know TV directors or radio station programmers wanted us to watch or listen to. 
um, wherever they were, you know, thousands of miles away in some corporate office, they were deciding what we could what we could listen to and when. Well, suddenly I was getting all this information directly, anything I wanted at my fingertips at, at the moment that I wanted it. So I started watching a bunch of political politically minded sort of uh, documentaries and things like that. And I'd watch the daily show and things along those lines, just kind of your basic, you know, left, left wing kind of media that I would, uh, would have gravitated to at that time. But suddenly I started seeing in the related videos of YouTube uh, videos that I was watching these crazy things about nine 11 truth. And it was something that I just thought was so crazy and outlandish that I, I didn't even want to click on it. And when I did, there was often, it was often silly and, and kind of, you know, ridiculous, but occasionally there'd be something with a little nugget that I thought was interesting. And then when I started to look it up, well, is, is that really true? Was this thing called Operation Northwoods? What, what was that? And once I started to look this sort of stuff up for myself and found that there actually was something to it, I think that was the beginning of, uh, well, the trip down the rabbit hole uh, or, uh, you know, the, the snowball rolling downhill or whatever analogy you want to use. And it wasn't long. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't long before suddenly I was <laughs> encountering all this information I'd never heard of before. And I was starting to come around to the idea, well, there's clearly something more to 9-11 than what the 9-11 Commission told us. I'd read the 9-11 Commission report and was completely satisfied with it at that time. But I started to encounter all this crazy information that I hadn't heard before that I could verify for myself online. But I still couldn't quite bring myself to believe it. And it was at that time that I encountered a documentary called The Money Masters that went through the history of banking, specifically in the American context and the money creation system in America and the Federal Reserve. And once I started to see that and how the entire monetary system itself has been engineered from the ground up as a system of control, it's that was the penny drop moment for me. And I started really getting into this. And, that, and then it wasn't long before I realized I have to share this information with other people. I'd never heard most of this, you know, in my entire life. And it's all there and it's all documentable and provable. And look at all these links and you can go directly to the sources and read the documents. So my initial reaction was to try to share this with people. I was initially just going to hang it, hand out DVDs to people on the street or something, but that didn't make any sense. I'm here in Japan. I mean, uh, most people don't even speak English, so that's probably not going to be helpful. And so I thought, well, it's the Internet age. I'll start a website. And uh, it's one of the few very spontaneous things that I've ever done in my life. But I just I decided I need a website. And I, within a few months, I had it designed. I had the whole idea ready and I started it and I started my podcast and I've never looked back. Nice. Yeah. that The money part. I think I saw that movie, The Money Master as well. Is it from that Bill? Bill? Um Bill, Bill Still. Yes, yes, yes. Very good at explaining all that. Yeah, that kind of awakened <clears throat> me up quite a bit as well. Um, so how do you, how do you go about sifting through everything? Like what's a video process like, because you've got some really, really good deep information, you know, you get down to the level of, you know, documents and, and you kind of deconstruct a lot of the, the media and the, the propaganda. Can you give us a little bit of how you do that and, and then how you sort of publish it? <clears throat> Right. It's it's difficult to say in a general sense because it depends on each subject and it depends what rabbit trail I'm following. But uh, I, I do have a couple of videos up where I go through this just to try to show people what a process might look like. Uh, there was a, uh, a video I did on something called Planet 5250. I had this uh, email in from someone who was talking about the speech to the UN General Assembly by a, a 
Ban Ki-moon, the Secretary General of the UN, I think last year, mm-hmm. where he was talking about Planet 5250. And this this person wrote in, what on earth is Planet 5255250? And I had no idea either, so I had to watch the speech. And then I went through the process in that video of what I would do to try to find out what on earth is he talking about. So I go through it and found out, you know, and you can find out in a minute or two if you know how to search. So so a lot of it is just being able to use a search engine and sort of know what to look for. But on top of that, I, as I say, I've been doing the actual website for nine years. I've been collecting this information now for 10 years. And in that time, of course, I mean, just from day to day surfing, if nothing else, you come across all sorts of information. It's a question a, of being able to save that in some format that you can easily access later, but B, also yeah. remembering that that information exists. <laughs> I mean, if you just have your eyes and ears open for long enough, you do start to come across enough stuff that in the future when you see something, you can go, oh, that reminds me of this other thing. So that's that really is an important part of my process at this point now that I have, a, I guess, a decade of this research under my belt. And uh, from there, I mean, the other, I think, cardinal rule of what I do is to try to look for the source document as much as possible. If there's, you know, if it's talking about a research study or something, do, is that research study available online? Can I see that? If it's talking about some sort of government document, is that government document online? If not, what's the closest I can get to that? I mean, is there some government page that talks about that document or something along those lines? Trying to get back down to the brass tacks to see, you know, actually what's going on. And again, I think you construct a more kind of uh, a fine grain view of reality from that rather than reading about some document read the document itself yeah, and you can yeah. find out much more about it so was 9-11 the big hook for you then is that kind of what got you got you really going yeah i would say that was the issue that definitely motivated me and that's why the first episode of my podcast was about 9-11 and i i talk about it it's been something i've come back to time and time again throughout the podcast i mean it was just such a monumental event monumentally traumatizing for a lot of people. I'm sure everyone in the audience who was alive at that time probably remembers what was going on that day. That's that's our JFK. So it was definitely something that motivated a lot of people, including mm-hmm. me. We want to get into that a little bit more because lately Darren's actually... I'm been, like halfway through that right now. He's, he's Yeah, he's been... Which is interesting how it happens so many years later, but you just see the same old garbage over and over and then something all of a sudden clicks with you and you're... You're looking at it in a different way. But I wanted to talk while we're still on the topic of your, your process and and your site and all that. So you're, you're listeners supported as well, right? So you don't have any corporate sponsorship. You, you can talk about what you want to talk about. And you have a community now built around you that supports you. Can you talk about that aspect of it at all? Yeah, that was extremely important for me when I started the website that I didn't I didn't want advertising on the website. And initially, I didn't expect or think or or truly desire there to be any sort of funding mechanism for this. It was just something I was doing because I was motivated to do it. And it was interesting. It was the first thing that everyone that I talked to about the website when I said, oh, I'm starting a website. Everyone said, oh, are you going to put advertising up? What are you going to advertise? (laughs) And that was just immediately what everyone thought this was all about. And I'm like, no, that's not what I'm doing this for. Um, Within a few months or a year or whatever it was, I uh, started to have technical difficulties with the laptop that I was working on. And I was using this old crappy microphone and things like that. So I would have little fundraisers from people listening to the podcast. Can you chip in, you know, 10 bucks or whatever to help me buy this microphone? And uh, that's the way I built up a lot of the equipment um, that I'm using, sort of the the base. And then from that point, after, I don't know, three or four years, maybe, I started selling DVDs. And then I started 
having a subscription. And really, the subscription was just, if you want to support this work, please support it. And that was basically it. Uh, at some point, I felt I, I felt bad about that. I felt guilty. So I, I do a subscriber newsletter at this point. But uh, still, I've never wanted to put any of the vital information up behind a paywall. So that's always been an important part of my vision. And yes, I've never wanted to rely on ads. I've never used YouTube ads or anything of that sort. Um, because, again, you are going to be beholden to some sort of corporate interest at some point. But more than that, I think it's about finding the new business paradigm for this new economy that we're creating, this new peer-to-peer economy that I've talked about on my podcast before. We are living through a moment where, I mean, I understand in the past when you had to go through a printing press or a newspaper or a, a television or radio station, I mean, yeah, you have to be mediated through that that vehicle in order to reach a wide audience. But now we can reach tens, hundreds of thousands, sometimes millions of people through YouTube and sites like that directly why on earth would we then go through these other middlemen and sell our audience to them so that they can hawk their products at them? Why not just ask for support directly? And if what you're doing is real and true and it's important and you're passionate about it, I think that will come through. And I think people will be willing to ship in a dollar a month, which is my uh, minimum subscription fee. So, I, And luckily, I'm right about that. Luckily, my intuition was correct, and I am able to do this full time, which is, uh, I mean, it continually blows me away that I'm able to do something that I'm this passionate about, that I really think is important to me, that really does intellectually challenge me, that is fulfilling, and I get to do it f- full time because of these uh, subscribers out there. I mean, it's, in- it's incredible that we are living through this moment of opportunity right now, so I just wanted to... Uh, Grab the bull by the horns, as it were, and uh, try to use it. Uh, try to absolutely use this moment for as much as it's worth. Because I know a, a crackdown on internet communications is coming at some point. I don't think the free and open internet as we know it today is going to exist for very much longer. So I want to try to use it for everything it's worth while we have it. Yeah, it's inspiring how people want to donate. <clears throat> we're just doing the same thing. We're fundraising for a new recording computer right now. Because ours is like 10 years old and it's about to crap out. And, and it's just great that people want to help you out because like, we're putting, you know, we don't charge anything. It's all free. And and just to know that people are out there because I was one of those people that would donate to something that I like. So it's just nice to know that there is a community of people out there that, that will do that. So how, how long do you think that we have before the crackdown happens? I can't say specifically, but I do know that it's already happening in a lot of ways. And just one example of that is that last year we started to see a huge crackdown on YouTube accounts um, from a lot of alt alt media types of uh, organizations. I know We Are Change uh, was was uh, caught up in this. Um, Antiwar.com was caught up in this. Basically, they had their accounts demonetized by Google. Um, because they were dealing with sensitive political matter. I mean, they didn't even really get an explanation, but it was on posts that dealt with controversial topics, which, I mean, hey, I understand it from Google's perspective. Sure, I mean, it's a controversial topic. You don't want to put advertising up on it and get advertisers angry about the fact that their advertising is appearing on, oh, this, you know, whatever video about a false flag terrorist attack or something. Um, But that's exactly why we can't rely on those types of income sources because they can be turned off at the flick of a switch and they will be at some point. So YouTube is an example of that. Uh, Twitter, again, already starting to shadow ban people and uh, trying to streamline and tailor feeds. We know Facebook has been literally 
playing around behind the scenes and then they'd come out months later and say, yeah, we were doing a research experiment. And so we tailored your your news feed, you know, in a certain way <laughs> to see if we could alter, you know, the, the types of things you were looking at online and what you were doing online. Uh, these kinds of things are already going on. So more so than I think the overt, you know, government coming in and trying to censor things online, I'm I'm more concerned about the way that people are just gravitating towards these few places online where everybody goes. And uh, they're, of course, completely controlled by people in corporations uh, and generally people who travel to the Bilderberg meeting every year and things like that uh, that are not exactly our friends and are not friends of free speech. Mm. So um, uh, in some ways, you know, we may be doing it to ourselves instead of having the government come in and censor things. We may just be signing away, you know, our, our free speech rights because, well, it's just easier. Everyone's on Facebook, so I will be too. Are you, are you worried about, about paid trolls at all? I've been wanting to do a show. Like, I've been wanting to get to Darren shaking his head over here at me already because it's like I, I – once you find out that there's a bunch of paid trolls out there, you just wonder how much, you know, how much of the – the negativity and the comments and the fighting and all that is caused on purpose by somebody. Have you ever d- digged in, dug into that at all? Well, I, I do know. Yes, you're right. I mean, it, do, it does happen. There are admitted, you know, uh, uh, there are all sorts of governments that, that admit to the fact that they employ PSYOPs personnel to sit there and post comments on things. I mean, Israel and the United States and Canada and other countries uh, besides have these types of dedicated forces and various programs that they're working with. Um, so that does go on. It doesn't affect me personally at all, because if I was the kind of person who took my you know, self-esteem or my direction or what I want to do with with my podcast from comments from people online, I probably would have given all this up many, many years ago. I mean, <laughs> I get all sorts of feedback, some of it glowingly positive, some of it extremely negative and everything in between. But it it doesn't really affect me. I'm not the kind of person who puts much stock in that. I mean, it's nice to hear nice things, but I don't take a, I don't take it for anything really supremely profound because, again, I mean, it's just it, it's coming from, you know, Internet user 73AB1 or whatever. I mean, I don't know who this person is and I don't it, I don't base anything on it. So I already have a very strong sense of who I am and what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. And so nothing's really going to deter me from that. I could see that there are a lot of people out there who would very much care much more about YouTube comments and things like that and might get deflected from it. So I understand it's an important phenomenon, but just thankfully, I <laughs> I think I have the temperament for being able to do this and not getting uh, diverted from it. So I haven't really, you know, I I haven't, I, I know that there are people out there that uh, try to deflect and and uh, and cast negativity on what I'm doing, but I just don't let it affect me at all. Yeah, that's good to hear. I mean, I, I was also thinking more on a on a on a general or global level, like as part of the clampdown or as part of the way this right, you know yeah. that we lose yeah. that we lose mm-hmm. the reality of what we're doing here based on a bunch of fake uh, fake bots yes. out there or something. Well, that's that's, a, that's an important point because of course people are uh, are there are perceptions of even yeah. what is happening in the world yeah, is affected exactly. by the types of comments that they're reading and. Of all places like YouTube and places like that, God help us all. Yeah. Um, and, and yes, you're right. I mean, it, it it is an important and and in some ways frightening thing because again, people do tend to put, even if they don't necessarily consciously put a lot of stock in that, their perception of what exactly. is happening is shaped by it. So that we could, and this has been talked about uh, quite a bit in in the last few months, but we've been talking about it on the Corporate Report for a while now. But uh, the idea of um, 
sites like Facebook or Google or YouTube being able to flip an election, for example, by Again, tailoring your news feed or, or showing you certain things or in the comment section, if people are making certain types of comments, then, the, you know, they might influence you one way or another. And it might happen subliminally. So you don't even know that it's happening. And I think we're starting to see uh, uh, there is definitely a, a divide and conquer kind of um, get people at each other's throats yeah, narrative yeah. that's going on right now. And a lot of it is centered around trying to get people to hate their neighbors and hate those people around you. Don't ever think about, you know, the system itself, the way it's structured, the people at the top of that system, the people who literally control the creation of the money supply itself. Don't think about that. Think about, you know, your neighbor because he's a different skin color. Or he's, you know, it's a it's a woman and you're a man, so you should hate each other or those types of things. And that is really starting to come to a head uh, online. I'm starting to see that more and more. And I find it extremely, extremely worrying in a lot of ways because it's something that has been played upon time and time and time and time again throughout history. Anyone who has studied history knows that tyrants love to get people at each other's throats so that people don't come after the tyrants. And that looks like what's happening more and more online. And I think, yeah, I mean, the paid trolls definitely have a part to play in that narrative. Yeah. And it's even, it's even polarizing in an organic way, like the internet, like organic. What the fuck is that? Like romantic organics? (laughs) You know what I mean? So the internet itself, with uh, with all the information out there, everybody that has their belief system can pick and choose what they want to look at. So it's polarizing already, and then you throw on the divide and conquer thing on top of it, and I, I, I see that coming too. That's one of the things that scares me. Yeah. So what, what, yeah, and of course, of course, what's going to be the solution to that? It's like, oh, you know, people are only looking at their in their little echo chambers in their corner of the Internet. So we need to we need to make people look at other points of view. So, you know, let's have some sort of, you know, fairness doctrine for the Internet, whereby, you know, sites have to link to an alternative viewpoint. And it sounds ridiculous. It sounds preposterous. It sounds like something that they'd never do. But that sort of proposal has been floated politically in recent years and. I mean, it all it takes is some sort of, you know, I mean, imagine if these 2016 U.S. elections devolve into some sort of chaos at the primaries or whatever. And, you know, whatever happens, <laughs> riots and whatever, you can imagine the types of things they're going to start to propose in the wake of that. And it may be something like that where it, it might start innocently enough. Oh, well, OK, you can write whatever you want, but you've got to link to another viewpoint kind of thing. And then from there, I mean, just imagine how quickly it can devolve into something much more Orwellian. Wow. Yeah. So what do you got? What do you got uh, coming up? What's some new stuff before we get into some of the some of the stuff we want to talk about, like the banking and maybe 9-11 a little bit pointing, helping point some people in in some good directions to get deeper into that. What What's some of the latest stuff you're working on? Are you past the Panama Papers already and moving on to other stuff? Uh, mostly so. I mean, if if any nuggets come out about <clears throat> that, I'd be interested to see them. But something about the Panama Papers that I would I would be interested to see some real reporting on. And uh, (laughs) if no one else will do it, maybe I'll have to find a way to do it myself. But uh, something that no one's talking about is that, so for people who don't know about this Mossack Fonseca law firm in Panama that this data was leaked from, 11.5 million documents, 216,000 corporations, uh, uh, documents have been leaked. But something that no one's talking about is that one year before the Panama Papers whistleblower contacted the Sedoitsche Zeitung, there was another leak, an earlier leak from Mossack Fonseca. And this was a much smaller one. It only dealt with a couple of hundred companies and it was, a, you know, much fewer documents. But that, that leak, that hack, whatever it was, was sold 
quote unquote, anonymously to German prosecutors who then went out and prosecuted various banks that had been involved in shady, shady dealings through this Mossack Fonseca. They sold a CD of data that I guess had been leaked or hacked or whatever from this law firm to German prosecutors for 1 million euros. And this was one year before the Panama Papers leak. So that raises all sorts of questions for me about I mean, A, how on earth, what, under what jurisdiction, by what process is the German government buying data of hacked information from anonymous whatever hackers or whatever? Uh, I mean, that just doesn't make any sense whatsoever. That has intelligence operation written all over it. And uh, even if it wasn't an intelligence operation, by that point, it becomes an intelligence operation because, of course, Germany either shared that data with the United States, the UK and, uh, and Iceland, or uh, they independently bought that data as well. I'm not sure which, but US, UK, and Iceland did get that data as well from that earlier leak. So at that point, the NSA is involved. They're going to know who this quote-unquote anonymous leaker, hacker, whatever was, um, simply because they know what's traveling through the web at at any given time. Uh, That's what the Salt Lake City uh, data center is all about. So, I mean, there's just so much shadiness there. And of course, I haven't seen any reporting, any reporting whatsoever on that. The only mention that I've seen is the Sadoitsche Zeitung in their About the Panama Papers write-up. They mention that story in just one paragraph. They just say, oh yeah, there was this earlier leak and it's been used to prosecute a bunch of banks. And then there was a, uh, a Deutsche Welle article that, that mentioned this again in, in passing in a couple of paragraphs. Other than that, not a peep. And no one seems to care you know, that go- governments are going around and buying this data from hackers and, and things like this. I mean, again, there's just there's just some real shadiness going on. But anyway, yes, I'm moving past the Panama Papers at this point, and we'll, uh, we'll return if and when there's any other valuable nuggets. But the thing that I'm really working on right now is a follow-up to a, a documentary that I made at the end of last year called How Big Oil Conquered the World. And that brought us through the beginnings of the big oil, big oil, oil industry, really, um, and, and the people who founded that and got it going. And now I'm moving into what's coming next, because ultimately my thesis is that the oligarchs, the the people who controlled the monopolization of the oil industry and made untold riches from that, don't fundamentally care about oil itself. They are not wedded to the oil industry (laughs) and they are moving on to the next big thing, which is not going to be about oil. It's going to be about putting in the technocracy smart grid control grid. Uh, based on the global warming scam and basically just trying to control every aspect of your existence for your fundamental guilt, uh, uh, fundamental guilt, your, 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 what, what do you call it, original sin of existing and breathing out this evil carbon dioxide. And that is already going into place. And the craziest thing about it is everyone thinks, oh, it's, you know, it's the big oil Oil companies are trying to cover up the truth about global warming. It's the exact opposite. The oligarchs are trying to create this untruth about global warming specifically so that they can bring in the solution of cracking down on every aspect of your existence. Wow. <clears throat> that sounds kind of scary. What 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 kind of uh what kind of crackdowns are we talking about? Like do you have any specific examples that are gonna end up being, you know, the the focal point in this? Like internet obviously is one thing. Um global taxes, that kind of thing? Yes. Well, I can give you an example um, that has actually been talked about in the UK, where a few years ago you had an MP talking about the idea of having carbon credits. Yeah. Um, 
that every single person in the UK should have a certain amount of carbon that they are allowed to use each year. And once you've spent that, expelled that, then you're done. And uh, maybe it'll be a cap and trade system where you can buy more credits off of someone else, but maybe not. Maybe you're just done. And um, you can't do anything else once you've reached that quota. You can't even um, breathe. Those, well, <laughs> maybe maybe there's an allowance for breathing. Maybe, but uh, for but purchasing now. more more energy. But that's I mean that's just one example of an overall ideology that in fact was talked about and formulated as far back as the 1930s, even earlier, under the name of technocracy. And uh, this was actually incorporated as a. Uh, an actual corporation called Technocracy Inc. In, that was incorporated in the United States back in the 1930s. And their whole idea was we are going to base the economy not around money, but we're going to base it around energy because that's the fundamental underlying thing amongst all the, the sort of bottom line that underlines all economic transactions is energy. You need energy to do anything economically productive. So we're going to you know, measure things by energy, and we're going to use energy as a form of currency. So this idea has been around for a while, um, but it's extremely, extremely worrying on who gets to decide uh, in what ways and what people and for what purposes that this energy gets to be spent, How who gets to decide what your credit, your, your quota is for the year and um, whether it should be increased or, or reduced, and how is that going to be used? And unfortunately, it's, those decisions are going to be made uh, by the technocrats, who themselves are, of course, funded and controlled by the very same extremely uber-wealthy financial interests that have puppeteered the system and the, were the ones creating uh, the big oil system in the first place, like the Rockefellers, the Rothschilds, the British royal family, the Dutch royal family, these families that were at the founding of all of the major oil companies as we know them today, will be the ones controlling and putting the system in place. And when I get this big oil documentary sequel out, you will be able to see how it is the exact same people. It is the Rockefellers. It is the Rothschilds. It is the Dutch royal family. It is the British royal family that are pumping all of the hype and hysteria right now around these issues, specifically to bring in the smart grid, which I'm sure some of your listeners have heard about or encountered in some form already. It's starting to filter into our lives where all of your appliances are going to be linked to the internet and they're all going to be talking to each other and they're all going to be at some point wired directly into the uh, the electricity grid so that your dishwasher knows to run at three in the morning because that's an off peak time and, you know, it will use it, it won't cause as much disturbance in, you know, overall energy consumption if it goes at that time. And maybe you'll get a one cent per kilowatt discount or whatever it is on your electricity bill because you're using it an off peak hour. Oh, it's all great. It's all sunshine and rainbows and lollipops until you find that, for example, in the California, they've already uh, put in legislation that the government can, under certain circumstances, control your thermostat. So, you know, if <laughs> if they decide you can't you can't use air conditioning today, well, then you won't be able to use air conditioning today. And again, all of this could be wonderful if it was run by angels only for the best possible purposes. But, um, well, I think we all understand that's generally not the way these things go. Yeah, that's the hard part. I don't know if humans are even capable of it. Of what? Understanding it or? Of being, of <clears throat> like, um, I don't know what the word is, but basically it's just like a utopian ruler. You know what I mean? It just seems right. like power unfucking questionably corrupts. Yeah. When money's, when there's money but, in play, like it seems like the old Indian chiefs and shit back in the day, they had it together because they didn't have any money. Yeah. Well, I, I agree. I mean, power corrupts 
And the only and only corrupt people really seek power, really want power. The average person doesn't want and desire power over other people to, you know, manipulate them to their purposes. The most most people just want to be left alone to live their lives. Um, it's only the really corrupt types that really seek that power and and try to wield it over others. So that's one of the fundamental inbuilt problems with that type of utopian thinking. But the other problem is that most people are designed to to want, to desire, or at least to just go along with power and control grids. It's like, oh, well, we need a leader of some sort to come and lead us and tell us what to do. And people have that built in. And uh, that's something that I think we, as a human species, we have to start really confronting that and dealing with those issues because I think things are coming to a head a lot faster than people realize. And technologies that wouldn't have even been possible to dream about a few decades ago are now starting to come about in terms of manipulating the genome itself and uh, and other types of technologies that are really going to change what it means to be a human being. And uh, before we start playing around with those types of technologies, it might be a good idea to sort out, you know, what the system is really about, who's engineered it, and for what purposes. Wow, yeah, and then that gets into all the, you know, all the food we've been eating and all the poisons and the environment and our food that we've had to deal with now, like we are changing already. I mean, there's just, you know, way more illness and and but it's hard for people I think to um to not think that, you know, everyone will be propped up and there will be less hunger in the world and less, you know, the, all the the poor societies, everybody will be propped up by this technology and by this sort of, you know, new form of government in a way like it's it's scary that people can actually think this could be a good thing it's scary but it's not surprising um as i went through in my big oil documentary uh there was uh, the green revolution of the 60s and 70s not the environmental revolution but the green revolution refers to the uh the basically the the mainstreaming and the globalization of industrial agriculture so, you know, using industrial fertilizers and uh, and and uh, tractors and all sorts of modern uh, machinery to vastly improve farming practices and make it possible to cultivate much more on much less land with much less resources, blah, blah, blah. And because of this wonderful transformation of the global uh, agricultural infrastructure, we can now feed many more people than it was possible before. You know, billions of lives have been saved we've been fed this narrative for a very long time. So it's very easy for people to go along with that and say, well, you know, it's all great. It's wonderful. It's win-win for everybody. What could possibly be wrong with that? Well, a couple of things could be wrong with that. I mean, first of all, the narrative is deeply flawed in that it uh, definitely biases towards the, uh, the idea that the, the, this, uh, the, the, the globalization of this industrial uh, agricultural processes was responsible for the, uh, the growth in yield that we've seen in the last few decades when in fact, some research, for example, in India shows that before the before this this in uh, green revolution hit India, there was already an increase in yields that was going on, and in fact, that that increase itself declined after the green revolution hit mm. India. So uh, it was still increasing, but at a slower and slower pace. So there are certain parts of that that are wrong. But secondly, the part that people don't see because it's not explicit out there is that there are business corporate interests that directly benefit from from that giving granting of technology oh the the bestowing of technology from heavens on those poor you know dumb far farmers around the world in third world populations uh there there are definite business and corporate interests uh involved there that of course had a part to play in all of this the industrial fertilizer manufacturers the chemical manufacturers the uh, the the big oil interests that serve to benefit from the the these machines that are running on their products 
And um, and it was these companies that helped to convince, you know, for example, the U.S. government through its uh, Food for Peace program to basically buy their stuff and then give it to all these third world populations. And then what happens in the third world countries where this happens, all these farmers get dis- displaced from their land. They end up living in these shanty towns and slum areas around the major urban centers in Mexico and other places where they become fodder for the big manufacturing concerns that then swoop in with their will open a big plant and, you know, offshore all of this productive activity from the U.S. to wherever it is, Indonesia or wherever. And they use all of these displaced farmers as their cheap labor. So, I mean, it's win, 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 win for the business interests behind all of this and not necessarily a win at all for the the environmental or the social structures of these third world populations. But that's the narrative you're never going to see on the, you know, on the nine o'clock news or anything along those lines. It's always going to be just framed in that narrative of, oh, we've, you know, helped feed, you know, billions of people and everything's peachy keen. And just imagine extending that forward with these new types of technologies that are coming out, like like the genetically modified foods. Again, yeah, yeah. You know, we're going to feed feed the world and all of this, despite the fact that, in fact, numerous studies have shown that with GM technology, you actually need more pesticides uh, than you did before. There's actually an increase in pesticides that's going on with the use of GMs, the exact opposite of what they're trying to sell it as. But regardless of that, they're going to say, oh, this is going to feed the world and it's going to make everyone happy. Well, there's the environmental problems to worry about. There's the social problems. There's the uh, the fact that there are still the same corporate interests behind this as with behind the Green Revolution that are making billions and billions of dollars at the expense usually of taxpayers who are usually giving this, bestowing this again from the heavens via the government, which is basically taking your tax money and giving it to these corporations so that they can give these these things to farmers in third world countries, which ultimately don't even help them. So uh, it's, I mean, it's a horrific system that you really have to you have to wrap your mind around how mind-bogglingly vast and complex all of this is and how few interests it really serves and most people just don't want to take that step because that is a major step to take to realize that this type of corruption i mean i don't even know what else to call it evil in some senses is going on and is going on right in front of our faces and they're almost daring us to to sort of you know peel it apart which yeah. is what I'm trying to do with the Big Oil documentary and its sequel, which is why it's, you know, it takes months and months to try to put this together. Wow. So when do you think that'll come out? Good question. <laughs> like, are, you, are you thinking like this year or like in oh, a couple of years? This or year. like, definitely yeah. in the next couple of months, right, okay. um, but I can't give a, a exact timeline. My, uh, my next uh, child is about to be born in the next few weeks. So uh, hopefully uh, I'm going to take some time off and during that time off, when and if and as I have time, I'm going to be working on the script and trying to get it together. Nice. Yeah, so, the, the first one is really well done. I haven't. I actually haven't watched the video yet. I just listened to it in podcast. Yeah, me too. But I've been meaning to watch the video. But that was actually the first episode I listened to, and um, that's I went back from there. Yeah, know. yeah. So, so one of the things that woke me up a little bit was the Zeitgeist series there, and they, and especially about the banking and the. The monetary system, and we had John Perkins on uh, once a couple years ago, and and it's such a fascinating topic to me because it feels to me like that's one of the highest level problems with what we're dealing with. Like a lot of it comes back to the the debt based system that we're living in. But I was trying to explain it to a friend 
yesterday even. And I, and I can't seem to just articulate it to people properly. Like I rely on guys like yourself or, or John Perkins or like even Paul Hellier, Hellier, these people that can talk about how our, our monetary system, even in Canada here switched in the seventies from actually like, you know, government being able to print their own money to it having to go through the banks. So you've also done a documentary on that in the federal reserve. Right. And can you, can you just sort of describe that problem in your own words to help me articulate it to other people as well? Right. The uh, documentary is called Century of Enslavement, the History of the Federal Reserve. It's up for free on my website, corporatereport.com slash Federal Reserve. And it's got the transcript and the video and the podcast and all of that there. And the long story short is that in it varies from country to country. Yeah. But generally yeah. speaking, in most of the, the developed nations, the uh, there is usually something over 90% of the monetary supply itself is bank credit. And bank credit is not money in the sense that I think we tend to think of it if we are just thinking of money. We're probably thinking of, you know, bills in our wallet or whatever. But when we're talking about the bank credit, that is generated on the basis of debt, debt owed to the banks. So when you go in to get a mortgage, when you go in to, you know, get a car loan or whatever it is, you are not getting money that is being shuffled around in some vault in the back of the bank. No. You are getting new bank credit that is being generated at the time that you sign that mortgage or that loan. And that's an important thing to keep in mind because that is an excellent system if you're a banker. <laughs> I mean, it works out very well that you get to literally create money, quote unquote, by by loaning it out to other people at interest. And here's the other part of that is that if most, the vast majority of the money supply is created as debt owed to banks, then that means that all of the interest that is owed on that debt, which is created, doesn't exist at the time that that, that, that debt is created, the bank credit is created. So other people somewhere in that system have to go further into debt in order to create the money that you can then hopefully get in order to pay the interest back to the bank on your original debt. So it is a system that is debt-based and it is self-feeding. It's a self-feeding loop where debt has to continually increase in order for the system to maintain. If that debt starts to contract, the money supply itself starts to vanish and there won't be money for you to pay back the, the loans that you already have, the mortgage or whatever it is, because that money literally won't exist in the system. So other than the, the bills that are created by the treasury or whatever, maybe in whatever country that you're in, or the, the coins that are minted, which is a tiny fraction of the money supply, other than that type of money, it's it's all bank debt that's being created right now. And and the implications of that are vast. I mean, one of them is that, for example, yes, with the, the, the U.S. Treasury and the Federal Reserve or with the, the Canadian government and the Bank of Canada, it means that the government has to go cap in hand to banks basically saying, OK, you know, we'll we'll loan this money uh, or we'll borrow this money into existence from you. I mean, we give you the right to create this money out of nothing, but yeah, we're going yeah. to come and borrow it from you yeah. at interest. Yeah. I mean, that's a crazy system when you think about it. But uh, it also filters down to the individual level. And in the U.S. system in particular, the Federal Reserve System is, I mean, it's just a mind-boggling system that came about, as these things do, as a result of a false flag of sorts. <laughs> there was a, um, I mean, there's a long history about central banking in the United States that goes right back to the founding of the country. But the, the modern version of the story starts in 1907 when there was this huge panic on Wall Street and giant uh, Wall Street firms were going under or at risk of going under. 
Uh, there was this huge credit contraction. There was a big panic. People were pulling their money out of the banks. They didn't know what was going to happen. This had been going on for decades, but this 1907 event was particularly uh, disastrous. So at that time, everyone's clamoring, you know, we need we need a central bank. We need a central bank in the United States to come and sort this out and to be the lender of last resort and to control and regulate these banks and basically keep Wall Street under control so that they can't screw with the economy like this. And so from that, eventually what what resulted was the Federal Reserve uh, and that eventually is actually an interesting part of the story because it involves in 1910 a bunch of bank bankers meeting with uh, a high-ranking senator who happened to be the father-in-law of uh, uh, of um, uh, uh, John John D. Rockefeller the uh, the second junior. Yeah, uh, it, they they met in secret on this island in this you know remote location. They were using you know only first names so that no, not even their butlers or servants or anyone would know who they are because if these people were caught meeting together at this time, it would have caused a national outroar. A- anyway, ultimately they come up with this plan that eventually gets adopted in a different form, but still it gets adopted and the Federal Reserve gets created. Now the interesting part of the story is that 1907 panic was actually itself created by J.B. Morgan, who himself was, of course, one of the the central figures behind the creation of the Federal Reserve. And what the Federal Reserve was, everyone thought, oh, yes, you know, this central bank's going to come down and regulate the bankers and it's going to control what's happening. All it was was the creation of a cartel, a, a, a government-granted cartel um, run by the bankers themselves. The, the bankers get to decide... Uh, the the directorship of the Federal Reserve to a large extent. Um, most of the directors on most of the regional banks are bankers themselves, and of course, then they get to help appoint the who's going to be on the the board itself. So it is really a banker run cartel that quote unquote regulates the banking system. We know how well that goes. For example, in two thousand seven two thousand eight, with that Lehman Brothers collapse, where you know ultimately the bankers sitting on these boards granted themselves and their own banks. Billions and billions and billions and billions and billions of dollars in bailout money. Um, and uh, we have this creation of this too-big-to-fail system. So this is the upshot of what happened there in the United States. And I think that's just one example among many examples that exist in many countries throughout the world of what is essentially the same system. Um, almost every country on the planet runs through that central bank system where a central bank controls and regulates the monetary supply and who ultimately benefits from this? It's the commercial banks that create that money supply. Right. And, and instead of that system, we could have something that would be more like the, the governments themselves. Like, I mean, Kennedy and Lincoln both wanted to get back to the greenback, right? Didn't they? So that would be the government basically mm-hmm. controlling their own money supply. Is that, is that the, what the yeah, difference that, would be? Yeah, like, gets floated around quite a bit, but that's not actually the case. Uh, people point to Kennedy's executive order 11110. As this example, he was trying to reinstitute uh, some sort of you know solid backing by creating these silver certificates right. that could then be issued directly by the Treasury. Uh, that's actually a bunch of bunk. Um, what that executive order actually did was to allow the uh, Treasury Secretary to discontinue the issuing of those silver certificates, which were being issued at regular intervals. Uh, the last one took place uh, the year after JFK died, but on the back of that executive order um, that he issued... And then it was stopped forever. And it wasn't because JFK was, you know, the big block to this. He gave them the power to do that. That's what that executive order was really about. So you have to look at that actual history. I know it gets floated around a lot, but uh, G. Edward Griffin has a great post up about it on his website that I I point to. And G. Edward Griffin, of course, is one of the 
one of the people who's been who's written one of the you know the the, the, the best from works Jekyll on Island, right? exactly the creature yeah. from Jekyll Island about the creation of the Federal Reserve. Yeah, that's like one of the top ten books to to read. <laughs> top ten books of all time. Yeah. <laughs> huh. So, Darren, what do you want to get into here? Nine Eleven. Yeah. I guess we're we're gonna run out of time pretty quick. I guess what we're <clears throat> we'll link to. We'll link to that big oil podcast in the show notes because uh, there's no point in really trying to get into it here when the podcast really puts it together well. Yeah. Um, but yeah, maybe we could do a quick kind of rundown on nine eleven and maybe a couple other a rundown of a history of American false flags if we mm. have time. Sure. Well, if you have questions, yeah. Let me know. So. D- Darren's been getting into the nine eleven thing a little bit more because, you know, he works for steel saying, as yeah, well, I work, right? I, yeah. Like he's a he's an iron worker. So when we watch this documentary about where the steel went, it's it's pretty mind blowing. I mean, there's the whole building seven thing. There's, I mean, we don't want to, you know, everybody's heard all the the same old things over and over again. But when you really think about where the steel went. Or how perfectly the buildings came down. That it just it's just mind blowing. So I guess what what could you point some people to besides your own work, of course, which you you have a great podcast about the money, like where, you know, who was really sort of profiting from nine eleven, or where did the you know following the money part of it, which is some mind blowing stuff. But what where would you point people to, and what are some of the the things that really turn the tide for you on this? If people are still sort of not bought into the whole the whole. Uh, not inside job, but that, that something else is afoot besides the mainstream narrative. Well, the interesting part is that, as I'm sure you've seen in the last few weeks, uh, they're starting to roll out what I think has always been the limited hangout option, which is, yeah, okay, uh, there was a bit of foreign help, but it was Saudi yeah. Arabia. It was yeah. all Saudi Arabia, which I, I've been talking about for years. This is their limited hangout. This is what they're going to say. And ultimately, yes, maybe they'll uh, throw Saudi under the bus, but I think that has more to do with geopolitical relations and what yeah. they want to do with Saudi Arabia than it does with the actual truth about 9-11. Saudi Arabia did have a role in 9-11, um, but I think the bigger question is who had a role with Saudi Arabia and uh, how did that transpire? So, for example, I've interviewed uh, uh, J. Michael Springman a couple of times on my podcast. He was the one of the consular officials at the Jeddah consulate in Saudi Arabia. He was there in the late 1980s, and he was working in the visa department, granting visas to people coming wanting to come into the United States, and he kept getting these requests uh, from people who clearly were not, should not be issued a visa. They they were people who were um, single men, you know, traveling alone, couldn't explain why they were going to the United States, what they were going to be doing, who they were going to be meeting. I mean, just didn't meet any of the criteria. So he would reject their visa application. And then someone higher up in, in the consulate would come along and pr- approve it. And this happened over and over and over until he started to figure out that the people who were approving it were uh, CIA in the consulate, uh, CIA agents that were working in the consulate. And they were approving this because these were Osama bin Laden's men back at the time when Osama bin Laden was the CIA's golden boy back in uh, the Soviet-Afghan war. And so these people were being brought into the U.S. for training and they were being granted visas, you know, through this through the CIA in the Jeddah consulate. 9-11 comes along and where do I believe 11, maybe it was 12 of the 9-11 hijackers get their visa to enter the United States? It's the Jeddah consulate Hmm. through a special program called the Visa Express program. 
that started out just uh, uh, several months before 9-11. Um, basically, this program was created, and within months, all of these 9-11 hijackers started flooding into the country, or at least alleged hijackers, because, again, we don't really know what, what was happening or not happening on those planes that day. Um, that's just one example of one of the things about this story that yeah. very few people have heard about. And everyone, as you say, everyone has heard something about the buildings and how they collapsed. Hopefully, most people have heard of WTC7 these days. Um, if not, they should really look into it. But the the thing that, that really is more interesting to me is all of the, the geopolitical stuff surrounding this, all of the war on terror nonsense that's been created as a result of this, all of the, the, the funding, um, crazy stories like P-Tech, which was this corporation that was creating this business archi- enterprise architecture software that would give a firm a complete overview of their 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 organization, their personnel, their equipment, how it was managed, how it was all databased, how it was all connected through databases. And it would map this all out and, of course, then become a perfect blueprint for someone who wanted to use that, uh, you know, for their own purposes. And they their clients were everyone. I mean, the NATO and uh, the CIA and the White House and, and just, I mean, a who's who of Washington and all of the, the most sensitive organizations on the planet. And uh, also um, uh, they were running uh, they were running interoperability uh, tests on uh, software between the FAA and the Pentagon on 9-11. Um, and guess who was behind this? Well, uh, one of the, the sweetheart investors behind P-Tech was this, uh, this person who was then placed on the international uh, terrorist list, watch list by the Treasury Department uh, the month after 9-11 because, oh, hey, he, he turns out to be connected to uh, Osama bin Laden. It's, I mean, this crazy, crazy story that almost kind of a little bit got reported on by a couple of intrepid journalists and then got immediately shut down. And uh, it generated a kind of phony raid by the FBI back in 2003, 2002, 2003. And they immediately, the same day as the raid occurred, they declared, oh, everything's okay. You know, P-TECH is fine. These people are all right. Um, Again, there's so much more to that story, but that's one of the things I've looked at. I've looked at the 9-11 trillions documentary, as you say, the the money trail surrounding this. There were all of the, the... jets, uh, the the drills that were going on, 26 drills have been identified that were going on that directly impacted what was happening on 9-11, including wow. drills of uh, active ongoing NORAD drills of uh, hijacked jets flying into New York, um, uh, jets flying into government buildings, um, the National Reconnaissance Office, for example, on the morning of 9-11, uh, things along those lines. I've looked into the movements, for example, of People like uh, Cheney and Rumsfeld on 9-11 and what they can tell us about what was happening that day. Yeah. I mean, for example, Rumsfeld being the the commander in chief of the uh, not the commander in chief, but the, the highest ranking civilian in the uh, de- defense department and really the de facto commander in chief since yeah. Bush was out of the way that morning yeah, yeah. was not contactable by his own staff. On the morning of 9-11, while the planes were, were were hitting, while this craziness was going on, he was in a regularly scheduled briefing with his CIA uh, briefer and was not available during that time. His staff were trying to get in touch with him, and he's just sitting there as if, you know, the country isn't under attack. This is the, the person coordinating the defense of the country, not even listening to his own staff that morning. And then, you know, once uh, once the Pentagon gets hit, whatever happens there, he runs out on the lawn and goes for a photo op carrying stretchers around 
Um, again, rather than coordinating defense against this ongoing attack against the country. I mean, all these kinds of crazy, crazy loose ends. And there are hundreds of them, hundreds of them that I've talked about over the years that really add up to something much, much, much grander than what we got from the 9-11 Commission, which itself admits it was mostly based on torture testimony, testimony extracted through torture, um, it through interrogation uh, uh, sessions that were recorded. But once it was discovered that those sessions were recorded and people started trying to FOIA them and there were there were court orders to try to uh, preserve that documentation, the CIA illegally destroyed that data (laughs) and said, you're never going to see it. So that's what the 9-11 Commission was almost exclusively based on is torture testimony that we can't even see the torture itself, um, which was recorded and then illegally destroyed in the exact defiance of a court order. And that's, you know, that's where... The story of 9-11 is we're supposed to believe it comes Gestapo. from. Gestapo. Huh. So where, where would you point people besides your own work then? Um, you you uh, did there mention so many, a couple guys. And, yeah, there are so uh, many places to go. But one, I mean, one researcher that I, I keep coming back to, he's done so much great work on this, is Kevin Ryan. Um, uh, I believe his website is digwithin.net. I'll okay. look that up. Oh, I'll, I'll yes, digwithin.net. Yeah. Uh, Kevin Ryan has done so much great work on 9-11 and the various things surrounding it um, and some really in-depth analyses, including on the the buildings and how they collapsed, but on on every other aspect of it besides. He was a, uh, a worker for under, uh, Underwriters Laboratories back in 2004. He was fired because he was looking into underwriters' laboratories, tests that they were doing of the structural materials at the WTC, because they had underwritten the steel. So they were trying to figure out what had happened at the WTC. He started to encounter some very serious problems with their testing to try to figure out, you know, in the wake of the, the collapses, what had happened. And when he started raising those questions, he got fired. So he started his own research. He now uh, is one of the co-editors of the Journal of 9-11 Studies and He's a member of Scholars for 9-11 Truth and Justice and 9-11 Working Group of Bloomington and all these other places. And he's just done so many articles over the years that are really worth looking at. And uh, and there are, there, there are so many individual researchers out there that have done great work. I mean, Aidan Monaghan and others have done so many FOIAs through which we've discovered things like, oh yeah, the SEC, the Securities Exchange Commission that was investigating all of this 9-11 insider trading. They destroyed all the records related to that that, uh, investigation as part of routine record keeping, (laughs) which we found out from a FOIA a few years ago. So, you know, just little nuggets like that are all over the place. Yeah, I know. I really appreciate that because there's so much garbage out there too. I just wanted to get your take on on some of the really, the good in-depth research going on. So so what about, um, hmm, what about the stuff that, that sort of turned us on that Judy Wood stuff that, uh, you know, trying to analyze, like, where did the fucking steel go? Do you, I mean, I know you're sort of follow more of the money document type stuff, but. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, honestly, I think there's a lot of stuff in the how of 9-11 that has, like any good psyop, like any intelligence operation, I think there's going to be pre-planted a lot of rabbit trails and that lead to nowhere for people to to fall down. Right, and right. I think that the the endless infighting and speculation and and dissent that goes on around uh, you know the the buildings themselves and the Pentagon and, and things like that, the endless attacking of of other 9/11 truth researchers is to me very suspicious. It seems to me that the the entirety of the focus of the 9/11 truth movement has turned into you know, the buildings and the collapses. Yeah, and yeah, I get yeah. worried about that. I get nervous about that because yeah. it 
it's there's so there's such a much bigger story going on here that involves so many other different aspects of what was happening that morning and all of the context surrounding that day. It wasn't just a single day thing. It was as one of the 9-11 commission uh, commissioners themselves said on record uh, to some independent journalists, he said, this is a, a 20 year or did he say 30 year conspiracy? Um and then he walked away from the camera. <laughs> and no one in the MSM ever followed up on that statement, surprisingly <laughs> enough. So, yeah. I mean, there's such a much bigger story. And then when everybody is just fighting about the, the sort of the hows, yeah. then yeah. We, we lose sight of the whys and the whos and the whats was going on that day. Yeah, and uh, that's so that's why I try to, I mean, look, I'm not an engineer. I'm not an architect. I'm not going to bring any sort of, you know, startling new perspective to that. So I let those people talk about that i i'd much rather talk about you know all of the other aspects that it seems no one in 9-11 truth wants to talk about anymore hmm. yeah that's well said I, I i agree with you i just think it the building it's a visible thing for people it's the most visible you know aspect of the whole the whole thing so not this sort of the money trail part so so before we wrap start wrapping up i know we, we're running out of time here do you, did you, you've been doing this for almost nine years and it's an interesting time because of the technology, everything's shifting so fast. Have you seen a big, a big change in, in the mainstream media or, um, do you feel it? Cause you're kind of on the, on the front of the whole thing. Mm. Yeah. I have seen quite a few changes over this decade, actually. I mean, uh, when I started as, as we said, I mean, the podcasting wasn't nearly what it is today, and uh, not everyone in his dog had a podcast. At the time I started, even talking about 9-11 Truth was much more controversial than I think it is today. I mean, I'm not sure it's any more mainstream accepted than it, than it was nine years ago. But at any rate, the fact that there are people who, you know, propound 9-11 Truth is not so... Uh, scandalous as I think it was when I first started doing yeah, this. Yeah. Um, and I think that's just a general change in the, the sort of societal conversation that's taking place that is taking place in part because of alternative media and podcasts and people's access to this information has changed. So that, for example, in the wake of the Boston bombing, uh, Boston Marathon bombing a few years ago, I remember vividly one of the one of the headlines that stuck out to me from Yahoo News was something about, you know, was Boston Marathon a false flag or something like that? Mm -hmm. And the idea, I mean... Even even explaining to people what a false flag event was a decade ago was difficult to do. Why would the government attack itself? That doesn't yeah, make sense. Kidding. Now it has become such a part of our discourse that mainstream news sites are asking this in the wake of various bombings. I mean, of course, they came up with the, nope, <laughs> no, of course, it's just crazy conspiracy people who say that. But the fact that they're even putting that out shows that the the flavor and nature of the propaganda has has changed as a result of what's going on. So there's been some huge changes in that regard. And, of course, as you say, the technology is always changing. And I'm falling behind. I don't know. I mean, I don't use Snapchat or Instagram or things like this. I probably should. It's probably the way to reach out to people these days. But I'm just not on that cutting edge uh, anymore. I'm not looking for the newest things. And so there will be other people who are probably listening to this conversation who are going to take up that that sort of slack and yeah. are going to you know carry this on to to. You know, more people in, in sort of wider areas. And that's great. And that's what this is all about. It's ultimately about the information. If it ever becomes about individuals and the people who are conveying this information, then we lose. Yeah. Because people are just people. They're all flawed. They all have problems. They're never going to be a perfect spokesman. They're never going to say it in just the right way for you know to make everyone understand. We need as many different people out there doing this to make many hands make light work and to make it not about people, but about the information itself. Yes. Yeah, speaking of the, the technology and what, what you do there, 
Do you do you do live stuff as well, or is it all? Are you noticing more more demand for on demand? Because we we we, uh, we just strictly do it in a podcast format. And then the follow up question would be: Are you have you thought about putting more content on demand in your podcast feed? Because just so people know as well, like you've got a lot of website content and lots of videos on YouTube and all that. So if if you don't find certain things in your podcast feed. You can get on right, your website, right, 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 right. Yes, yes. It's important. <laughs> I hope people understand. I have uh, many different feeds. One of which is just for the podcast, but I have interview feeds and video feeds. I have a feed for everything. So I try to make it as uh, as easy for people to tailor as what they want. But it's always been interesting to me that I, the entire time I've been doing this, it's always flummoxed me why so many people are so interested in doing live. They want to do something yeah. that's <laughs> radio, even yeah. if it's just internet radio. They want to do radio live. <laughs> Sometimes that makes sense. If you have a call-in show, yeah, sure, you want to do it live. But if you don't have a call-in show, I just don't see the the point of it. I mean, you can you can iron out technical difficulties, you can smooth things out, you can edit, you can you can do so much more when you're you're doing it, uh, you know, in a podcast format. So that's why I uh, everything I do is is like that. I don't do live. I used to have a live radio show a couple a few years ago, but. Uh, that just got overwhelming with my schedule. And uh, ultimately, again, there's not much point. I think the value that I add to the media that I create is in the fact that it is polished and it's put together and it's edited and hopefully it flows in a a good way and it's understandable and all of that, which you lose if you're trying to just create it all live on the fly. So that's why I I do it that way. And, uh, you know, I, I think people are still, a lot of people are still stuck in that mindset, the mentality of of radio or whatever, you know, they're trying to emulate rather than trying to create a new, a new form, a new media. Yeah. 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 I agree. So all your content is there for free. Whenever people want it, they can go get it and they don't have to worry about uh, tuning in at a certain time or whatever. Yeah. I, I love, I just can't, uh, I can't watch anything scheduled anymore or listen to anything scheduled. It's all, <laughs> it's all podcasts yeah, and audio books and stuff. So yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, thanks. Well, once you have the world at your fingertips, why would you go back to having to? Okay, exactly. you know, we will sit down between 7 and 8 p.m. and we'll. You know, exactly. Uh, I'm staying at a buddy's house right now and it's like that. It's fucking bam. He's like, well, I'm watching commercials for the first time in like five years. <laughs> and I'm like, holy fuck. <laughs> like, really? It's, like, it's, okay, it's, I can, trippy, it's eh? okay. I can fast forward them. Have you, <laughs> so it's like, oh, yeah, well, I can just stream all of it. Stream it, shit, and there's no commercial. <laughs> have you seen any of the big pharma commercials with all their little side effects and stuff like that? When you haven't seen one of those for a few years, it's kind of shocking when you see one. <laughs> no, I jumped into Gordon White's book. Not oh. Gordon White, is it Gordon White? Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. I jumped into that. Nice. So, James, you know, is there anything that's else? That's funny because I haven't thought of it. I haven't seen commercials in years and years either. I oh, wonder, yeah. I wonder it's, what it would be like if I went back to that. Try it just for just for experiment. It's creepy. I should, do. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Is there anything else you want to mention before we wrap this up? There are millions of things, but that's why I have a website. So uh, people can just find all my work. As you say, it's all free. It's all freely available. CorporateReport.com. Go and use it. There are thousands and thousands of hours now of of audio, video, of articles out there that free for the use. Uh, I try to link to all of the documents. That was one of the fundamental reasons I started the website is because, again, we have this new medium of the Internet. And I was listening to all these great podcasts and radio shows that then didn't link to the things they were talking about. And I thought, well, what are you doing? This is the internet. Let's use it for what it is. So I would always have show notes and that's always been a part of what I do. So again, all of that, I mean, I can't even, I, who knows how many hundreds of thousands or millions of documents I've have linked up uh, via the website. That's an information resource. I hope people use it as a resource and people are free to copy, share, spread, mirror, 
take take apart, use in any way they like any of this media and try to get this information out to other people. Right on. Thanks, James. We'll keep in touch too, especially when your when your sequel to the Big Oil comes out, and we'll uh, we'll link to that and we'll talk about it and maybe we'll have yeah, you back have on sometime. Or if you're ever in Calgary visiting old buddies, uh, drop by the igloo and we'll have you here in person. <laughs> Will do. Thank you guys for having me on. <laughs> right okay. On. Thanks, thanks, James. James. That was a chat with uh, James Corbett. What do you think, buddy? That was great. Could have gone hard, for hours. Yeah, it's hard to scratch. It's hard to get below the surface on a lot of that stuff. But he's very good at articulating it all in a nice summarized way, just like I was hoping. Yeah, we'll have to get him back on. He's someone you could have on, you know, once a year or something. Oh, kind yeah. Of once totally. or twice a year oh, and yeah. kind of bring he, you up to speed. Yeah, he talked about all that. That was the Panama Papers and all that. And he had a he had his video on that. He's up to date. He does this little uh, video that we didn't talk about on the interview with somebody else. He has a little yeah. I encourage people to, video. to check out the website and the YouTube channel because there's a lot more there than there is the podcasts. Only come out every few months. But if you check out, like the website's generating content daily. Well, I don't I don't know about daily. I've been checking it pretty. I'm a I'm a member. Are you? Yeah. Good. Good for you. Uh, it's nice to see you get involved in something like that. Go fuck yourself. <laughs> Did you, what I was going to mention to him when he was talking about the uh, the third world countries and the monetary fiascos and all that, did you hear that latest no agenda about that? About that? Like a deconstruction? Uh, Sundays? Yeah, I listened to on it. On the Ebola, 1.9 billion? <laughs> No, not Ebola, Zika. Yeah, but the Zika fund was what they're missing from collections out of the one, out yeah, the of the Ebola, Ebola fund. And they started tracing where it that goes. And goes back to the D&D. Yeah, of course it does. Like hundreds of millions go back to the Department of Defense. And it funnels back to each country. Like what a mon- money laundering scheme that is. For drugs. What? There's drugs in there somewhere. What do you mean? It's, it's all it's all the bowl of disease stuff. Like it's it not the drug laundering. That's this is a different laundering. That's the well, same laundry mat. Same laundry mat. <laughs> yeah. I don't think it's a different laundry mat. Maybe it's a couple of machines over. <laughs> <laughs> but it doesn't matter. Nobody cares. Well, I guess maybe it's uh, well, proven care. that people do care, right? If they're fucking overthrowing people in UK and Iceland. Yeah, I was wondering if the Iceland guy, the pan, the first guy that got uh, run over by the Panama Papers, he didn't Iceland fuck over their banks recently? I wonder yeah. if that's got if anything that's to, do it's something to do with it. Fuck you, buddy. <laughs> Two to the head. Yeah. yeah Anyways. Big, big thanks to James for coming on the show. Check out all his stuff on his website. Check out his YouTube videos. Uh, yeah, definitely one of my favorite shows right now. Right on. Yeah. Good and, stuff. Uh, of course, while you're checking stuff out, check out grammarica.ca slash support. Uh, sign up for a monthly subscription for our show and help us keep the lights on. Uh, right now, we're also doing the promo for the new recording computer, grammarica.ca slash upgrade. Uh, you can get an entry there for donations of t- one entry for $20 and three for 50 We're going to draw that June 1st, which is our three-year three year anniversary. Oh, yeah, nice. Is or, that what we're going to do? Yeah, or when we sell all the tickets. Right. How far are we now? Did you just uh, say that? No, that was, we that haven't sold any tickets in a while, so yeah. someone buy some tickets. We took yeah. last week off, too, yeah. though. So. Yeah. Um, hmm. There's probably like 50 left, I think. Okay. Yeah. Right on. 
Yeah, so check that out. Sign up for the newsletter, grandamerica.ca slash news, and uh, tell your friends about the show. Spam, gram. Spam, gram. See you next week.
I'm a rambling gram with synchronicities all over the web. And Aaron is skeptical about everyone and don't believe it yet.